0: it's been a long time since you've heard from me. I realize that. But there are some very, very valid reasons for that. Some I will go into today. Others I cannot go into today. But I will in short order. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the newly renamed Jamie Dury Show. That's right. Now, those of you who have listened before know that this show was formerly known as the NPO podcast, National Preview Online. That name had to be changed, and I will go into the details as to why that change was made and why it had to be made uh, in a subsequent show. Uh, But rest assured, it was a necessary change. And actually, uh, it is not a change that I consider to be all that negative because most of the commentary that we would get Uh, about the show, never really referenced the name of the show very much. Very rarely would we get a comment saying, oh, you know, great, another great NPO podcast or another great national preview online podcast. We didn't really get that. Most of the comments uh, reflected my name and said, great job, Jamie, or Mr. Dory hits the nail on the head, or, you know, JD calls it like it is, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we would just uh, go with the name of the host and just call it the Jamie Dury show, which seems to be the route that, um, many people in, even in terrestrial radio, uh, do the Rush Limbaugh show. Of course, was the most successful talk radio show, the Rush Limbaugh show. He didn't come up with anything else for it beside his name, the Sean Hannity show, even Dan Bongino, who does a podcast calls it the Dan Bongino show. So following suit, we are calling it The Jamie Dury Show. However, in the course of our little odyssey, we found out several interesting things. Uh, when you change the name of something, you have to do all manner of changes. You have to change your, your, the name of the show on your hosting service. If you have a website, you've got to rename it. If you're advertising, you have to rename it. you have a Facebook page, you have to rename it. And then it turned out that the name of the show was popping up in places that we didn't even know about. It. For instance, there's this site called Listen Notes. Now, apparently, this site is sort of like a Nielsen rating of podcasts. Uh, it tells you where your podcast falls with respect to uh, other podcasts. Now, they rate the podcast on a scale of 1 to 100, and then they tell you in what percentage of the listenership uh, you fall. Now, when I checked uh, the rating for the formerly known you know, NPO podcast, they had us uh, at a rating of 24 out of 100, which is the bottom quarter, but not bad considering the volume of podcasts out there and the relatively brief period of time that we've been doing it. And they also tell you that you cannot look at those numbers in absolute terms. You have to look at What your listener, what your rating is vis-a-vis other people or other podcasts that are similar to yours. In other words, other podcasts that cover news, politics, societal and cultural matters, not just you know podcasts as a whole. Now, the second number gives you where you are in the listenership by percentage, and they say that we're in the top ten percent of listened-to podcasts. Now, I don't know if that's the top ten percent of all podcasts or simply the top 10% of my category. But either way, I'm extremely pleased with that. And so apparently we are catching on and people are finding out about the podcast and it's all thanks to you telling people about the podcast, uh, writing reviews, and we encourage you to keep those reviews coming. Keep writing reviews, particularly in the iTunes app store because it seems to me that most of the, if you had to pick one source, where people are getting uh, the podcast, it's in the iTunes App Store. The category of other, when you look at the demographics, is, of course, the largest because it's all over the place. Google Play Store, not as much. Uh, The next highest spot would be the the Podbean app itself, but the iTunes App Store and the the Apple Podcast seem to be the two big places where they have the larger numbers uh, of any one place. So we thank you for that and we encourage you to continue to ask your friends to listen in and subscribe to the show and leave reviews wherever you wish to leave them, whether it be in the Apple Podcasts app or in the podbean.com app. So this was an eye-opening experience for us, and it's also caused me to rethink how we're going to move forward. See, originally, when we conceived the The National Preview Online thing, uh, it was originally a website where we were going to write articles, maybe do some speaking engagements, but it was pro- primarily going to be the written word. Uh, it's very difficult to get the written word off the ground these days because people just don't read as much as they used to. The new millennials like to be spoon-fed everything. And I think all of us have, to a sense, to one degree or another, uh, have grown into creatures of convenience. We would rather be spoon-fed stuff and be passive consumers of information rather than have to actively read it. It's so much easier, for instance, for people to drive in their car. They have to go to their morning commute anyway to simply, with their Bluetooth, connect their phone, download a podcast, and listen to it in the car sound system without having to do anything else. You're not Putting aside any additional time. It's a very efficient use of time. So I quickly learned once I had the idea of doing the podcast and and saw uh, how convenient it was for people that I think the primary way now going forward to um, communicate information to people will be by way of a podcast. And so that's the way we're going to go forward. The website has been taken down because we're going to redo it. We may not do it for a while because we don't think the website is necessary to the growth of the show. Since the show is now the primary uh, growth medium, not the website, the website will grow as a consequence of the show growing. It's not going to be the other way around. So I just want to make you aware of that. Now, there's a few other things you need to be aware of, since we are no longer calling the show the NPO. Uh, Podcast, we are no longer using uh, our email address, uh, nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. So if you need to contact me now, you will contact not the show at large, you will contact me directly at Jamie Dury, that's J A M I E, Dury, D U R I E, 1776 at gmail.com. That is our new email address, jamieduri 1776 at gmail.com. Okay, now a few other things quite apart from the changing of the name of the show that I wanted to get out to you. I'm going to cover some news today and some important topics, but not before I, I get these other equally important things relative to this show out to you. And that is, we've tried to grow the show in a variety of ways. One of the ways is through sharing on social media. So, the show now, when it's published on Podbean, in addition to being shared to the Apple Podcasts and the iTunes App Store, in addition to being shared to the Google Play Store, it is also shared to Facebook, it is also shared to LinkedIn, and it used to be shared to YouTube. We no longer share the show to YouTube, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason is that YouTube is engaged in shameless censorship. The first show that we did after connecting to YouTube went off without a hitch. The show went right up to YouTube within a day, uh, and it got good uh, viewership. The second one I did, I noticed after a couple days it wasn't getting very much in the way of hits or listens next thing I know, I get an email from YouTube saying that we have to pull it down because it violates their misinformation policy. Now, what was the misinformation policy? And they tell you exactly how you violated it. Now, during that show, I was speaking about the 2020 election and how these audits go forward in Arizona and other places more and more. We're learning exactly how this fraud took place. And there was fraud. And then I find out that YouTube has decided that anyone who alleges that there was fraud in the 2020 election and that that fraud somehow changed the outcome of the election is spreading misinformation simply because they don't agree with it. Now, this is not something that a handful of people believe. This is something that 73 million people plus in this country really, really believe. And there is evidence. Don't believe that there's no evidence. There is evidence. You're just not being allowed to see it because it's being suppressed by people like YouTube who don't want anyone to think that there was anything wrong or untoward about that election. So YouTube is engaged in, in misinformation by not allowing people to hear all the information. And as I answered them back, when you only allow one point of view, you can't be more dangerous than that. You know, as they were saying that we want to make YouTube a safe environment. Well, you're pretty making, making it pretty unsafe if you're not letting people hear all the facts. And then, I published an episode and it went up and I published another episode and I tried to explain what I was doing in the first episode that I wasn't alleging fraud personally, but rather reporting on other people saying that there was fraud. And they took that one down from YouTube as well, saying I violated the same policy. So I moved on to a different topic. Uh, In a subsequent show, I did a show about the vaccines and how the vaccines really aren't vaccines as you and I might think of them from we were kids getting a weakened virus or a dead virus um, injected into us from the disease that we wish to get immunity from. And now the body produces antibodies against the dead virus so that if ever the real virus tries to enter the body, it can't because we have antibodies. That's a traditional definition of a vaccine. But apparently the CDC has another definition of a vaccine and their definition includes anything, anything, which attenuates your vulnerability to a disease. So even if it doesn't prevent you from getting the disease, if by some contrivance it does prevent you, fine. But even if it only lessens the likelihood of you getting it, but doesn't guarantee that you can't get it, even if it doesn't even eliminate the likelihood that you will get it, but lessens the severity of it if you should get it, or lessens your ability to transmit it to other people, it still falls into a second definition that the CDC utilizes for a vaccine. That is the type of vaccine uh, that Pfizer and Moderna are producing. They're using this new RNA technology, these proteins, and there's a lot of misinformation out there uh, about the vaccines. There's a lot of information about the vaccines, and there's so much with so many people with so many axes to grind, that it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff to see what is true and what isn't true. There are a lot of people that are saying that these vaccines by Pfizer, Moderna, by virtue, of the way they work, uh, affect your body's ability to fight off other diseases down the road. I'm not so sure I believe that. I was sent a video, and it's very difficult when you try and consume information on the internet because it's very often unqualified information. You have no way of knowing if it's verified, and you have no way of knowing the agenda of the people who are providing it to you. So you have to listen with a very educated third ear. And I once heard during a political discussion on the now defunct McLaughlin Group show, which has disappeared since the death of the host John McLaughlin, there was a newspaper reporter, I'm trying to think, he was with Chicago or Washington, uh, Jack Germond, he was a rather rotund fellow, he was commenting on the campaign at that time of George W. Bush, his first year. And he was saying that someone in the Bush campaign has a very good third ear. And he talks about the third ear in politics. The third ear is, is, a, is a term of art to describe the ability to listen to what one side is saying, the ability to listen to what the other side is saying, and then the ability to discern that which neither side is saying, the elephant in the room. And that's sort of what you have here when you have to sift through what's true and what isn't true with the vaccines. Uh, my personal feeling is I'm a very good listener. In fact, I've often thought of, of um, going back to college to get another degree in addition to my bachelor's and my master's and my MBA to get a degree in communications. Uh, most people don't Really know what communications is. Communications is the ability to not only learn how to communicate effectively, but also to learn how to listen effectively. Now, when I listen, I pick up things that some other people might not pick up because I listen to every little nuance when somebody describes something to see if people are trying to um, play the definition game, like. Uh, like Bill Clinton did when Bill Clinton said and looked very carefully into the camera, I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, because in his devious mind, he was saying, well, I think that sex is sexual intercourse. Therefore, since I know I didn't have sexual intercourse with her, if I'm asked the question, did I have sex with her? I can credibly to my mind answer. No. Well, If you're producing these propaganda-type videos, panning the vaccines, saying they're capable of all of these malevolent things and the people who develop them are evil and are trying to kill us all by compromising our body's ability to fight other diseases with this RNA, DNA technology used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, if that were true, the presentations and the facts themselves, on their face, should make the case. You shouldn't need to sensationalize your presentation with half-truths. Now, a good friend of mine, uh, who I would not consider a conspiracy theorist, had one of these videos sent to him, and he in turn sent it on to me, so I listened to it. And I was about three or four minutes into it when I dismissed it. I could have listened to the entire thing, but I was a little busy, didn't have time. But once I heard this one line, it red flagged the whole thing for me. This person was trying to pan the vaccines by saying they're using experimental technology, and they're making guinea pigs of us, and they're they're, um, compromising our immune system. Uh, The medical profession does this all the time. And then he made a reference to propofol. And how they give you propofol, they give you the same stuff that killed Michael Jackson. uh, Well, that's a half-truth. Propofol really didn't kill Michael Jackson. Medical neglect and incompetence killed Michael Jackson. Propofol is a very, very acceptable anesthesia. And it is not a very, very deep anesthesia. It's what they call twilight. It's the kind of anesthesia that they give you when you're having something like an endoscopy, where they put a tube down your throat to inspect your stomach for ulcers or your esophagus for esophageal cancer or other diseases, or when you get a colonoscopy. Now, I had both an endoscopy and a colonoscopy probably about almost 10 years ago. That was long before anyone heard of COVID. And they gave me propofol. I'm still here. When properly administered for the appropriate purpose, under appropriate conditions, propofol is a very safe drug. Michael Jackson was not taking it for appropriate reasons, and Michael Jackson was not having it administered to him under appropriate conditions. Michael Jackson, lunatic freak that he was, was taking propofol to go to sleep. Apparently he couldn't sleep. So the way his doctor allowed him to sleep was to regularly give him Now, if you know anything about anesthesia, any anesthesia, you know that sometimes people have trouble recovering from the aftermath of it, which is why they develop things like propofol, so it doesn't put you in as deep a state of unconsciousness that the type of anesthesia they would use uh, for conventional surgery when they cut you open would do. They use it when they don't need to put you in as deep, and there's a benefit to that. And under normal conditions, most people don't take enough anesthesia during the course of their life to make a real difference uh, in their quality of life. But when you're taking propofol on a daily basis or several times a week just to go to sleep, it probably has long-term effects. In Michael Jackson's case, he was given a dose. He was in the presence of his physician in his home. It was a long period of time before the physician realized There was a problem, and he was doing CPR before they got actual medical help to him. And when they did the autopsy, they've suppressed a lot of information. Uh, Michael Jackson was skin and bones, apparently, when they did the autopsy on him. He was not healthy at all. So to make a statement that's a loaded statement and try and make it sound that Michael Jackson was a perfectly normal, healthy person— who was given propofol and just died in a one-shot deal from propofol, is a half-truth. And if you have to throw in half-truths like that and exaggerations to sell me on your notion that the COVID vaccines are causing all of these problems, it tells me that you're probably a little short on real evidence and that your argument is a little bit thin. So I don't believe everything the proponents of the vaccine say Neither do I believe everything that the detractors of the vaccine say. The truth, as usual, usually lies somewhere in the middle. Okay, so with that having been said, I've gone over uh, a few of the things that I wanted to, why the show was changed, and so forth, and um, why we removed the show from YouTube and the censorship that's going on. So now let's get to a subject that I wanted to speak about today. Now, everybody is speaking about Afghanistan, and it's contemptible the way the president has abandoned so many people and the, the cowardly way we left Afghanistan. If I was leaving Afghanistan, I would have maintained a military presence there until the very, very end, and then made sure that I knew that everyone was out. I would have maintained control of Bagram Air Base. And when everyone is out, the military would have made their exit. The amount of material and resources that we're leaving behind is incredible. I want to talk about one little thing. A few minutes ago in the podcast, you might have heard a dog bark. That's my personal bodyguard. He's my dog. He's a beautiful Belgian Malinois, the number one military law enforcement dog in the world. We had a large number of those dogs deployed in Afghanistan. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that all of those dogs are among the resources that were left in Afghanistan. The Taliban hated those dogs. They were told to fire on the dogs first. That's how formidable they were at detecting people. I can only imagine what's going to happen to those dogs. They'll probably be tortured. They'll be killed. The military should have brought those dogs back home and not left them to our enemies like they did with dogs during the Vietnam era. And at the very least, if they knew those dogs were destined to live there in abject misery, they should have put those dogs out of their misery themselves, either with a syringe or with a single bullet, rather than subject them to what fate awaits them now. That's contemptible. Beneath contempt, and that the President of the United States will allow that to happen is beyond my comprehension. But let's talk about another issue. Back in the 1970s, there was a lot of, in the late 60s, there was a lot of racial unrest in this country, similar to what we have now, but a little bit different. But there were some very, very radical and very dangerous organizations, the Black Liberation Army being one of them. They were involved in a lot of attacks on law enforcement. In fact, things had gotten so bad in many large cities that the New York City Police Department, for instance, particularly in precincts where they knew there was a a high level of BLA activity, would send two radio cars to calls that routinely only required one, like a family dispute or something like that. They would send two cars because phony radio runs were being uh, called in through the system for the purposes of luring law enforcement personnel to a particular location where an ambush was planned. Now, ambush-style attacks are of all the type of attacks that result in the death of police officers, deaths reporting to domestic disputes where somebody produces a gun or takes a gun from an officer, responding to assaults in progress, robberies in progress, so forth and so on. Ambush-style attacks usually make up the smallest number of -of line-of-duty deaths among law enforcement agencies. There has been a 148% spike in ambush-style attacks over the same period last year. That's an incredible increase in the number of attacks. The data shows that between January 1st of this year and August 31st, and this is provided by the National Fraternal Order of Police, 83 police officers in this country were shot in 67 separate ambush-style attacks. As I said, it's a 148% increase from last year. One such attack, it's reported here in the Epic Times, it was in Ar- Arvada, Colorado. It took place in June, resulting in the death of Officer Gordon Beasley. A fake 9 11 call to lure him in. There was another one like that in Nashville. And we also are aware of that case, I believe, in Los Angeles, where this lunatic just ran up, fired into the radio car, and then ran off. And those officers were left to die, but fortunately, they survived. Now, why did I chose to highlight this particular issue with so much going on? Because I think when you juxtapose what I just said, the censorship that's going on in YouTube, the censorship that's going on elsewhere in our society where you can't say the truth or you're labeled a freak or a lunatic, the propaganda surrounding vaccines, the propaganda surrounding this entire COVID-19 virus and the politicization of it. And now this new unjustified sheer panic over this Delta variant, which although perhaps more contagious than the original COVID-19 virus itself, is no more lethal. In fact, it is less lethal. The mortality rate of the Delta variant of COVID-19 is eight hundredths of one percent. That's 0.08 percent. 8 hundredths of 1%. That's not 1%. That would be one person dying in a 100. It's 8 hundredths of 1%. Now, most of us have taken basic math, so you know that 1% is 1 out of 100. Well, 8 hundredths of 1%, to give you the, a mathematical ratio that you can understand, with a mortality rate that low, for every 10,000 people that become infected with this Delta variant, eight people will die. Eight out of every 10,000. And you can rest assured that those eight will already probably in compromised states of health or predisposed to death by some other condition um, <clears throat> that potentiates the effect of the Delta variant. To get engage in these sort of measures, going back to lockdowns and masks and vaccination cards and Nazi style tactics, show me your papers if you want the hamburger, you cannot sit inside. That's the new order of the day in New York City. Is not justified by that type of minuscule mortality rate. You see, life is a mortal condition, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody gets out alive, regardless of there's a COVID-19. Epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, or not. You cannot manage this crisis or any crisis to the point where you're going to have zero deaths. It's a fool's errand. You're never going to be able to stop everyone from dying because there just are too many people who are already predisposed to things. You can bring the death rate down to a certain level. And if it was a high death rate, I would be in favor of these things. But you can only bring the death rate down so low. And then you get diminishing returns. And then it becomes draconian. So in other words, if the mortality rate from the Delta variant or even from COVID-19 were 50%, that would mean that out of every 10,000 cases, 5,000 people would die. So we undertake programs and vaccines and lockdowns and masks wearing and all this sort of nonsense to try and reduce that number. And so we do. And the next thing you know, we cut it in half. Now we have twenty five hundred people dying out of every ten thousand. That's twenty-five percent still too high. So we tighten things up further, and next thing you know, we have twelve five. And that's twelve and a half percent. But that's not enough. We cut it in half again, and now we're down to six and a quarter. And then we're down to three and an eighth. And then we're down to one and three quarter and change is somewhat. At some point, when you get down to a certain level, it becomes difficult as a practical matter to achieve any meaningful reductions. It's the same reverse as an athlete who's a world-class sprinter. He gets a time, he trains like a fiend, he gets in shape, he gets his time down as low as he can. He has to work harder and harder and harder For smaller and smaller reductions in his sprint time to the point where it may not even be worth it, where he's just going to risk injury by overtraining. These people are doing the same thing in reverse with the COVID. They're trying to manage us to a zero death rate figure. Never going to happen. You don't have zero death rate from the seasonal flu. You don't have zero death rate from cancer. You don't have zero death rate from a whole host of things. Because everyone is going to die. Eventually. So eventually, something winds up being the straw that breaks the camel's back in every person's life that pushes them over the edge. For some, it's just organ failure. For others, it may be a cold that turns into pneumonia because the guy's 95 or the gal is 95 and weak. Eventually, we're all going to check out. What's being done to us is not justified. The city of New York was just about starting to come back. And now they're putting the knife in the restaurant business again by saying you can't go inside unless you have the vaccine card. Now, I have two businesses that I run outside of this podcast. And I got the vaccine, as I've said before, because I was being bankrupted. I wasn't going to be allowed to run my businesses, and I have to feed my family. I didn't want it, but I did. But now after everything I'm seeing, and now talking about boosters and more boosters, I'm never taking another shot. I resent taking the first two, and I'm not allowing my son to take the shot just so he can go inside and have a hamburger in a restaurant or a pizza. Just not doing it. I'll either take out, eat in, or we'll sit outside. But I'm not putting, or I'll just leave the city of New York. Very simple. As many people are. And that's going to be the end of the restaurant business in the city of New York. Labor Day weekend is upon us. It marks the end of a tumultuous summer. We saw a lot. We saw Americans die in Afghanistan. We saw an idiot, lunatic, pervert removed from office in the state of New York. I'm talking about O'DuChe, the former governor, Mario Cuomo. The man who everybody hailed last year and now couldn't wait to get rid of and treat it as a scourge. As I said once before in an episode, like my mother said, a pat on the back is never too far from a kick in the ass. And no one was more deserving of that kick in the ass than Andrew Cuomo. But this is the last weekend of the summer. I don't know how your summer was, but make the most of this weekend, enjoy it. And let's hope, let's pray, that this fall, this winter... It brings about happier times for all of us. And let's pray for the Americans that are still stuck in Afghanistan. Because they've been abandoned by a commander-in-chief that doesn't even know where he is and may not even know who he is. For the Jamie Dury Show, <laughs> I'm Jamie Dury. Have a nice weekend.